Turn in your Bibles, please, to Judges chapter 10. Judges chapter 10. Let's hear the Word of God. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. And after him rose Jair, the Gideonite, Gileadite, who had judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And they had 30 cities called Havoth Jair to this day, which is in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Camon. People of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you? And you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the, name, in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Now, one of the things we saw right at the very beginning of our studies in the book of Judges is that actual judges in the book of Judges fall into two categories. There are those who are called major judges and minor judges, like the major and the minor prophets, uh, major prophets like uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and minor prophets like Micah and uh, Joel and Amos. And the similarity between the minors and the majors here uh, are quite straightforward. Minor, uh, major uh, judges uh, worked uh, major efforts, uh, the battles were fought, uh, great enemies were overthrown, mighty acts were performed. Minor judges served faithfully and well, but the difference is that their biographies are usually shorter. That's the only 
Just like the minor prophets, their books are shorter. That's why they're minor. They're not minor because they're not important. They're minor because they wrote less. And I know how that feels, by the way. Uh, And you can work that out for yourself. But anyway, uh, the major judges were often called actually to fight for Israel's life against their physical enemies. The minor judges just got on with their duty uh, of deciding disputes between individual Israelites. Their role was to preside over the peace and stability of the land and to represent the true and living Lord. So, dramatic stories of victories and deliverances, major prophets, the day-to-day grind of ministry, marriages, families, donkeys, the minor prophets. Well, today we're going to look at these two minor prophets, and we're going to follow the hint of the Holy Spirit and not take very long on them. That does not mean it's going to be a very short sermon, but I should just warn you of that uh, up front. Tola and Jair, they hardly get a mention. Tola, we're told, arose to save Israel, verse 1. And then we're told that he judged Israel for 23 years and died. He judged and he died. His resume is brief. We know his pedigree. Pua was his dad. Dodo was his granddad. I wonder if, we're, if that's where the saying comes, as dead as a dodo. I, I don't know. But certainly when his granddad died, he was dead and he was dodo. Uh, so that's his pedigree. His tribe is Ishika in the hill country of Ephraim. His residence is Shamir. His tenure in office, 23 years. And his burial is in Shamir. The most important thing we know about his life is that Tola arose to save Israel. Lots packed into that word arose. This is how the normal way God raises up judges and then prophets in Israel is God raises them up. They don't promote themselves. They don't come as pretenders like Abimelech had. Remember, Abimelech just did some deals behind the scenes to make himself a leader in Israel. He was not chosen by God. He was not raised up by God. And he acted like Antichrist. And when he had done his murderous worst, he met a terrible end. And Tola comes onto the scene. He comes onto the scene to give some peace and stability and rest to the people. This is often how God acts in history. Periods of oppression and suppression and disillusion are followed by periods when his people can breathe again. That's what it was like for the children of Israel. They could breathe again. And during this man's period in office, that was really all that happened. Israel had rest from her enemies. And we learn from his story that nobody is insignificant to God. You may not do dramatic things in your life. You may not fight major battles and win and have all of the the wealth and fame that goes along with fighting major battles. But if you do your bit, your faithful bit, 
then God can raise the poorest of us to the highest in his purposes. Jair, the the Gileadite, judged Israel for 22 years, during which Israel enjoyed peace and rest. All we know about him is that he had 30 sons. I'm I'm thinking he must have had more than one wife. Uh, That would be a that would be a, and that wouldn't have been a good thing, but he had 30 sons. They had 30 donkeys. They were each given uh, a donkey uh, on their 21st birthday. They had 30 donkeys. <clears throat> and there were 30 cities named after him. So I guess it was, you ask somebody where they came from. I come from Jairsville. Well, which Jairsville is that? Well, if you go along that road there, you'll pass Jairsville 1, Jairsville 2, Jairsville 3, and then around the corner you'll come to Jairsville 5, and I, I live in that one. That was the kind of thing that was going on in Israel at that time. What's significant, however, about him in Bible terms is his name, which means he enlightens. He enlightens. We've learned that all of these Saviors, these judges who came to give freedom to Israel and rest to Israel, are actually forerunners of Jesus. They point us to the Savior who is coming. And J.R. does too. Uh, he, his name, as I say, means enlightens, and our Savior is the one who enlightens. John tells us in his gospel that Jesus is the light that enlightens everyone who comes into the world. He is the source of all understanding, all illumination, all reason and rationale. He is the source of that, and He leads us into an understanding of who God is and who He is by His power. He is the light of the world. He comes to bring light and life and understanding to men and women. So here these two men, and for 45 years, there is peace and there is rest for Israel. But both of them die. The work of God continues. God buries His workers. The work of God continues. They die. Times change. And look at what it says about the times as they change in verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. So many gods, so little time. They served them. And in addition, they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. Now, why did they do that? Did they look at all these nations round about them who were worshiping other gods and think to themselves, all these other nations are prospering. They're doing so well. They're doing well economically and financially, and their people are are demonstrating their power and their influence by conquering other lands, and they're very successful in battle, and everybody is ooing and eyeing at how wonderful they are, and here are we, and frankly, we're just a little tiny, tiny little nation in population comparison to them. Uh, Our God seems to be rather uh, 
ordinary compared to theirs. Their gods seem to be bountiful and less demanding than our God. Perhaps they were thinking along those terms. And this is a principle we see over and over again in the Bible. We find that when a good leader dies, the people of God are prone to turn to other gods or idols or false reason or false philosophy or false worship or a false sense of the end, the goal, the purpose of of living in existence. In the Bible, we discover that the goal of existence is not simply to work hard and die young, play hard and die young. The goal of existence uh, is not to co-opt the, the processes, the, the, the successes of medical science and to use them simply to uh, play to our needs or desires or to engineer them so as our bodies uh, desire we may have what we want. Does life consist in being able to modify every discrepancy in life and in my physical life and in my material life? Does life consist in being able to do that? You see Israel following Baal and Ashtaroth and Rimon and Chemosh and Milcom and Dagon. They absorbed these gods. They gave themselves over to these gods. They put to one side the day of rest, the Sabbath. They did not worship He who is. They abandoned the sacrifice and service of the tabernacle that was built by Moses. Perhaps it started small, perhaps just bit by bit, piece by piece, they started adding on the ethics of the nations round about, rationalizing away the idea of sacrificing infants on the altar to Dagon, perhaps, or euthanizing the elderly as a sacrifice to Chemosh, or silencing the voices that represented the supernatural revelation of God to his people, sacrificing them on the altar of Baal. You see, what happens is this. They began by following other gods, like alongside God. They still believed in God, and then they followed these other gods as well. And they were doing them in tandem. But eventually they did what that direction leads them to. They actively then forsook the Lord and did not worship Him, it says in verse 6. And there's a great emphasis on that word. In the original, it signifies they were not only stopped worshiping God, they stopped so much as having the worship of God even talked about or named, and neither would they themselves mention God anymore. They forsook Him. And you see a mirror of this movement of the godless in the very first psalm when it talks about walking in the counsel of the ungodly, standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of the scoffers. That's how it begins. You walk and you start listening to what the wicked are saying, the ungodly are saying, the unconverted are saying. Then you stop walking and you draw closer to them and you listen more closely and you get into the conversation with them. It's not long before 
you're sitting with them and denigrating the things you had believed before. By forsaking the Lord, they were forsaking the only one who could save them. And by doing so, they shut themselves in with his displeasure. It says, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines. You want the Philistines, God? The Philistines can have you. You want the Ammonites, God? The Ammonites can have you. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. And for 18 years, they oppressed the people of Israel. Now, that's the story as it unfolds. And eventually, of course, when the going gets tough, the rebels get roaring, and they did. Israel cried out, we have sinned. Sounds good, we have sinned. Surely that's confession of sin, and that's a good thing, isn't it? Yes, it is. But you do wrong, and you get caught And the consequences of doing that become uncomfortable, and you say, I sinned. That's not so good. That's not coming from the heart. They're calling out to God simply because things have gotten tough. The consequences are the things that they don't like, and they call out to God. You can see that that's how God takes it in verse 14. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you, God says to them. Let them save you. It's a bit like uh, what God prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Where are their gods? God confronts the people of Israel. Where are their gods? The rock in which you find refuge. Who ate the fat of their sacrifices? and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them arise and help you and be your refuge, God says. You choose that, then you're left to that. But the gods cannot help us. They betray us in the end. Now, one of the, there was a major industry for a while in evangelical discourse trying to talk about what idolatry means in the church and what does a God substitute look like. I think we probably come at that from various different angles, and therefore I'm not going to explore too much, but I think could it be that today one of the idols that we pursue is the idol of the self? The self. St. Augustine, back in the day, the 500s A.D., he knew about that. He had a saying, homo incurvatus in se, man turned in on himself. Somebody else said, we make ourselves in a thousand ways the center of the world. Could it be that the idol that you or friends of yours are clinging to is the idol of the self? Of course, it can be money. That's a kind of obvious one that Jesus talks about and calls mammon. Could it be fitting in? I think that's often a great challenge and temptation for us, isn't it? 
when Israel found themselves surrounded by these other peoples, lords of them, all around them, worshiping other gods, they felt like the odd man out. They felt strange. They felt odd. And while they served him, he who is, that is, our God, they found themselves detested, abhorred, sidelined by other peoples. Sometimes serving he who is can make you feel or seem, make us seem severe and narrow and even a bit strange compared to other people. Or we can persuade ourselves that it does. Christian ethics and Christian doctrine have always been, in every age, counter-cultural. That can make us seem odd or contrarian with regard to the rapidly deteriorating ethos of societies. Sometimes the way of the world The ways of the world are adapted by the church, leading to a deterioration in the witness of the church and even apostasy within the church. Whenever we call evil good and good evil, we know in our bones that we are on the highway to hell. You need to know this this word, forsake. I said there's an emphasis on that word here. For the judgment of the church comes when God returns the compliment. When we forsake his law, we forsake his gospel, we forsake his word, well, then sometimes God leaves us to what we've chosen. He says, you want that? Have it. Go that way. That's what he's doing here. God is the one who has created us and who gives us existence right at this moment. He is the efficient cause of all that is, and of all might and power and rule. He's the one who keeps and preserves everything in existence. And he restrains the wicked, usually, until he doesn't. And in the days of our text, the enemies of the church overran it, made inroads into its borders, held sway over its people. In terms of the church, there are people who worm their way into its life, introduce their views, their ideas, their ethics, which are opposed to the things of Christ. They may start by attacking our liturgy because our liturgy reminds them of the transcendent God and that we are mere creatures and worshipers not in the saddle. God is in the saddle. They attack the liturgy. They attack our morality. They attack our theology so that they can rob and spoil and destroy our witness. You see, if we won't listen to sermons, then God will get your attention some other way, and that will not be as comfortable. That's the reality. And when we cry out, God may say to us, as he said to Israel, go and cry out to the gods you chose. Or or the language of Elijah when he was confronting the people and the prophets of Baal, he, he said, you remember, you guys, you need to cry out more loudly so that your God will hear. Maybe your God's fallen asleep. 
Or maybe he's on the toilet, so shout loudly and disturb him and get him to come and to answer. The prophet's taunting them. Now, I think this whole thing I'm talking about this morning seems very strange to our ears. Modernity has cut us off from what happened before modernity. Modernity has a number of goods that we recognize, good things that that we recognize and are very grateful for. We really are grateful to modernity for the advances in medical science. And we're equivocal about it from time to time. I think we're also very grateful for the technology that we've got now that we didn't have before. And there are other advances. These are goods. But modernity has been bad for us in that it has cut us off from aspects of the culture of the early church and the, the, the time of Jesus, which was, went, went right back really to, to Genesis, that whole period where there was a sense of the supernatural, a sense that God, that the God was governing the world. Uh, it's interesting that I think that today in the global church, it's our African brethren and our brethren in the more remote indigenous people groups that are far more in touch with the culture of the Bible than we are in modernity. Uh, they're much more open to the rites and the liturgies of the ancient church than we are. When the reformers in Geneva, Calvin and, and others were looking at the liturgy that they were going to adopt in, in worship, they thought, we need to look as far back as we can. And they discovered that looking as far back as they could, the place to find the early church in, in actual action was in places like Ethiopia and in Egypt at that time, the Coptic church in Ethiopia and Egypt. And their form of worship in Syria and Persian churches similarly would have had the same form of worship. And they looked there to find the elements that should be present in the worship, in the liturgy of the church. And at the basis of that discovery was the rediscovery of something that is in your face all over the Old Testament Scripture, and that is the Sabbath day, the worship of the Sabbath day, where God's people find rest, actual physical rest. I mean, you're sitting right now. Uh, We'll install the chairs that go back, like the cinema theater, whatever, in due course. Rest. A rest from your labor. It's also hopefully a rest from all the toil and thinking that you've been doing, finding some kind of closure to that, some kind of reassurance from the Word of God. The Sabbath makes religious worship part of the fabric of our everyday lives. The multitudes of religions in the world today are testament to that racial memory of what happened and what we were made for in the beginning, going back to the beginning, Genesis 1. We were made for worship. We were made for the Sabbath day. We were made to have a vertical relationship with God. 
Now, what happened at the fall is that 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 ubiquitous sense of the need for God was deformed in the way in which religions began to relate to their gods. Most of the other religions in the world relate to their God like this. The God that they serve needs something from them. It needs something from us. And so the business of the worshiper is to provide what the God needs. And that puts human beings in a place of power, power by which they can put pressure on the gods, they can extract or uh, extort from the God whatever they want. Paul confronted this in Acts chapter 7 when he went to Athens and he saw these very sophisticated but nonetheless pagan idol worshippers. And he says this to them, God, the God that made the world and all things in it, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made by hands, neither is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives to all things, life and breath and their existence. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. Worship is for us as we recognize his centrality in our lives and we reach up to him. The Sabbath was given as a gift where humans are commanded to rest. This resting is to enter into God's provision for us. In Jewish and Christian worship, it's the covenant, the covenant relationship. God enters into a covenant relationship with Israel and with the church. And why? In order that he might express to us his love. I have loved you. I have loved you from before the foundation of the world. I'm joining in this relationship with you because you are the objects of my love. I love you. God is saying to us this morning as we read his word that introduces this covenant relationship, this covenant assembly, which is what worship is, God's love for you as his people, for you as a Christian person. This worship is meant to say to you, God, to say to you that you are, God is saying yes to having you here. You are his. And you can see this in the book of Judges. What happens in this book? Israel repeatedly sins. Israel repeatedly fails. Israel repeatedly forsakes God. What does God do? Well, he disciplines them. He raises up. Other powers, they come and make life uncomfortable for them. He's doing that not as a punishment, but as a discipline to bring them, to get their attention and to bring them back. But what God does repeatedly in the book of Judges, he raises up a Savior. He raises up a Savior. He raises up a Savior. And what we see by this repetition is that in spite of the way we've treated God, God will not give up with his people. Until eventually, God comes himself as Yeshua. God 
saves. As God the Savior, God will come Himself to rescue His people. And this is His Word. The Torah, which was the holy book given to the people of God that they had in the time of the judges. The Torah was the book in which God revealed and established His covenant with His people. It was all based on God's Word. God's Word in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are God's ten words to Israel, telling us how to live before Him, how to know Him, how to live before Him. And those ten words in the commandments are also based on ten words in the first chapter of Genesis, where ten times, ten times, our attention is drawn to what God says, that is, to the Word of God. That's in Genesis 1, 3, 4, 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, 26, 28, 29, if you were asking. The words are, God said. So right in Genesis 1, in Exodus 20, at creation and in the commandments, God's Word. And in John's Gospel, the Holy Spirit takes that earlier revelation and He says, God's Word, that is the living Word of God, the Word that was always with God and from God, that Word that was there when creation was made, that Word through whom all things come into being. Through whom, as the Apostle Paul says, all things were created through Him and for Him. That Word has come and has taken on flesh to become our rescuer and our Savior. As one scholar puts it, God created the world in order to become a human being and to pour out His love and to bestow it upon us and to draw us into himself, into union. How much does God love you? How much does God love us? Read the whole story of Israel. Over and over and over again, we find it's unrequited love. We don't love him back, but he continues loving. Paul puts it like this, we are faithless, but he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Once he enters into a contract, arrangement, God has to stick by it, whether it's with Israel or with the church. So he raises up a Savior to give them rest. Here in the judges and in the prophets, we see recounted again and again the many sins, the moral failure, the desecrated worship. We see that God hands them over to be disciplined. Eventually, He will hand them over into exile for a while. He does that not to punish, but to discipline and draw them back. Those who abandon God do so because they want to be master of their own fate. They want to utilize their own freedom. But invariably, when we take things into our hands, we find ourselves caught up in the net of our activity and our work 
life balance and, uh, and all the other things that we do, and we become slaves of our own making. When people say no to the Sabbath, to that rhythm of freedom and service, with human life and divine worship perfectly in balance, then we make ourselves slaves to time and money and work and self. The story of Israel tells us of God's love. Those frequent interludes where a Savior comes and God gives rest are part of the big story of the Bible. Here's how it is in Israel. One day a week for worship and rest. One year every seven years during which humans rest and the land rests, prefiguring the new age. One year every 70th times seven years is the great Sabbath of all. When all debts are canceled, all sales and purchases are annulled. Everybody starts over again. And this new beginning, this world is received anew from the hands of God, the Creator, a true recreation. When somebody becomes a Christian, that's what happens. A true re- recreation. Debts are forgiven. And in the new heavens and the new earth, the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus, Jesus who offers us rest right now, come to me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest, will introduce us one day when he comes again into the everlasting rest of the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that as we face our today in which we live surrounded by potential gods and goddesses who want our attention, who want our affection, who want our money, who want us. We pray, Lord, that as we reaffirm this morning our faith in you and our love for you, and as we do it together so that we have each other to strengthen us and help us on the journey, We pray that you would be exalted and made very high. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.